0: Well, we're going to read this morning from Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, there's only 20, 21, and 22 to go. That doesn't mean three sermons, mind you, but it just it, uh, gives you a flavor of what's to come. And next, next week, actually, or, yeah, we're on to the Millennium, not the Millennium Falcon or anything like that. Uh, the millennium, the thousand years, which is a subject of a lot of discussion and debate. Are you post-millennial, amillennial, pre-millennial, or pan-millennial? Do you know what pan-millennialists believe? It will all pan out in the end. (laughs) (laughs) So, next week we're going to look at that. But this week we have this little section in chapter 19, Uh, from verse 11, which really expounds Jesus' words when He says to the disciples that they will see the Son of Man come with His holy angels at the end of the age. Here's an elaboration of that. Let's hear the Word of God. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True we're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast. And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in his presence and had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of Him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We live in a perplexing age. There are two movements that are occurring simultaneously or simultaneously. I translate for you. On the one hand, we see the de-Christianizing of Europe and arguably North America, while at the same time, we see the exponential growth of the church in the southern hemisphere and in East Asia. Here in the north and west, the decline, the actual dramatic fall of the church has been driven by liberal Christianity. It's in free fall. Though many Orthodox churches have opted for what we might call Christianity light, that is light on doctrine and light on ethics. And the evangelical church has fared no better, it is in free fall, its largest congregations being humiliated by uh, the the various uh, revelations that have been made about the leadership within those churches. Now this worldwide growth of the church, especially as I've said from Europe, which had been evangelized, North America, which had been evangelized, and between them represent what we would call Christendom. The fall of Christendom and the rise of the south and the east. This is the result of a specific fulfillment of a prophecy that Jesus made. He said, this gospel must be preached to all the nations and then the end will come. Similarly the apostasy of the many churches. The failure of faith of many believers within even Bible-believing churches also fulfills the prophecy of Scripture of a falling away in the last days. Christ will not come until the falling away has happened. Now these are reminders to us then that all of history is moving forward an end point, and that end point is the great day of God. And The great day of God is the day of the appearing of Jesus Christ. So we look at our text that describes that day, then I saw heaven opened. Echoing the words of Ezekiel chapter 1, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. We're going to be, have a description of God visiting this planet. In the Gospels, the heavens opened. When Jesus was being baptized, uh, Jesus promised the disciples, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now heaven is opened and the glorified Lord of heaven, Christ, comes down out of heaven. It's King Jesus who comes riding on the white horse as we shall see. There's a reference to the White Horseback in Chapter 6. And both there and here, it is a symbol of victory. Back there in chapter six, the rider is part of a fourfold scourge that will afflict the world with error and evil and will be victorious. And we see the signs of its victory in all of the filth that's being produced by by uh, porn and by the media and by our movies and, and uh, the series we watch on Netflix and so on. All of that evil, uh, the, the wars and the rumors of wars and the abuse and the violence in our streets <coughs> and the killings that have taken place <coughs> most recently in Buffalo and, and in Texas. <coughs> these, are, these are the result <coughs> of the victory of the writer of chapter 6. But the writer here is Christ, Christ in whom the eternal purposes of God have come to full expression and achievement. And the thing we notice about the description of Christ here is the names that He is given in the text. The first thing we're told about Him is that His name is faithful and true. Back in chapter 3, we saw the heavenly Son of Man speaking to His churches, addressing the church at Laodicea, and giving Himself this title. This is Jesus' description of Himself. I am the faithful and true. Hear the words of uh, chapter 3, the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Now those words faithful and true, actually tell you what the word Amen means. The word Amen means faithful and true. God is ultimately the great Amen. Christ, because He is God, is the Amen, the faithful and true witness. We find Him giving a faithful witness to God while He was here in the flesh. He reveals God to us. He reveals God in His glory and God in the relationship within the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is a faithful witness. And He's faithful because He is the Amen in flesh and blood. He is the true witness whose testimony, we're told, is the spirit of prophecy. And He's faithful to His people. The Apostle says… The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, Christ Jesus, who in His testimony before Pontius Pilate made a good confession, when Pilate has Him under the gun, as it were, and challenges Him about who He is, does Jesus renege? Does He dodge the bullet? No, He takes the bullet full on. He is faithful in His testimony, and He takes the road to the cross to die Himself that He might free His people from the tyranny of death. Prophet Isaiah, the Holy Spirit, exalts Christ. I'll exalt you. I'll praise your name. You've done wonderful things, plans formed of all. You are faithful and true. So, the writer is Christ. And in the midst of a world where there are lies and deception, And where people let you down, you need Christ today, the faithful and true one in whom you can depend. I mean, every one of us, every one of us, no matter who we are in this room, we we are able to let you down. That's the shocking truth. Any one of us in this room could bring embarrassment and shame to the rest. We have to be praying with each other that we don't do that, but the potential is always there. Only Jesus, only Jesus, only Jesus is faithful and true, absolutely, that you can trust in. Lose sight of that and put your eyes on other people and you will be disappointed. You will be. He is the faithful and true. And this writer is Christ for it says in righteousness He judges and makes war. Christ is the only one who can be described absolutely as the righteous one. You and I have been forgiven, we've been justified by faith, put right with God, but we got that as a gift. That's not who we are. Jesus is the righteous one. Uh, And uh, you notice that in His righteousness, he judges. This was the feature of the Messiah. If you read Isaiah 11, you'll see that, that when the Messiah comes, that's exactly what He's going to do in righteousness. He will judge, and He will decide with equity. He does the right things. He always makes the right decision. We, we make wrong decisions all the time in our families and our, for our own lives, in the church, we make wrong decisions all the time because we are only human. We're sinful human people as well. But Jesus judges with equity. It's Christ who comes both as the judge and the warrior. And you notice that judgment comes first. That's because in the divine order, judgment comes before the victory. And God's judgments are, are righteous because they are God's judgments as opposed to the very often compromised and sometimes even corrupt practices in our courts or courts throughout history. Now what kind of warrior is he? Again I I remind you, as we've reminded ourselves absolutely every time we've come to this study, this is a book written, chapter 1 verse 1, in symbols, in figures. You mustn't take it literally. Christ is not the kind of warrior that's going to march into Ukraine with, with bombs and with bullets and with tanks and missiles. That's not the kind of fighting that Jesus does. It's not physical, physical material fighting that's in view here. We saw there was war in heaven back in chapter 12 that kind of helps us to understand what's going on here. And there we find in chapter 12 that the battle was a legal battle a battle between the defending and accusing counsel Michael the archangel and Satan Michael fighting for the people of God Satan destroying the people of God And in that chapter we were told what Satan is Satan is the accuser he's the accuser of the brethren he's constantly He's accusing us of things we've done wrong. He's accusing us of the bad things we've done, but He accuses us of things we haven't done as well. He throws accusations at us in a way to destroy the fellowship and the purity of the church. And Jesus is our advocate. I don't know very much about uh, uh, American, the, the American legal system. I have read that it's based on the Scottish legal system, as everything intelligent in the world usually ends up being. But I do know that in the Scottish legal system, in court, there's a prosecuting counsel and there's a defending counsel, you would say here, I think. I don't know what you would say here, frankly. But there, they're called the advocate, the advocate. So you go to a lawyer, you talk it over with a lawyer, the lawyer tells you what to do, tells you what not to do, whatever and then it's handed over to the advocate who goes to court, and he pleads for you. He acts on your behalf. He defends you. And in the Bible, Jesus is called an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Satan is accusing the church. Christ comes along, and he stands both as a witness in our defense and as our advocating lawyer on our behalf. We find out more about this one. His eyes are like a flame of fire. That reminds us of earlier uses in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, and it denotes his omniscience. That means there is nothing he doesn't know. There is nothing he doesn't know. He sees and knows absolutely everything. And he's indignant over sin. He's indignant over sin. We can hide it from ourselves sometimes, but you can't hide it from Jesus. And he's vigilant in his care for his church and his people. Now, we we read, goes on to say, this this, uh, rider has many diadems. On his head are many diadems. Back earlier on in the book, The dragon representing the devil has seven diadems. The antichrist, the monster designating antichrist, has ten diadems. This rider has many crowns, many, 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 many. We can't count them. His royalty surpasses any other earthly sovereignty imaginable. Where do these crowns come from? Are they from the different kingdoms of the world that have Christianized? No. I'll tell you where they come from. He has chosen a people. He has called a people to Himself. You and I have been called to Jesus. And what has He done with you and me? Not only has He made us children of God, but He's made us priests and kings. And so, you find the redeemed with crowns on their head, and they throw their crowns, as it were, before His feet, and He is crowned with many crowns. Remember we sing that song sometimes? Crown Him with many crowns, the Lamb upon the throne. He is crowned with our crowns because He has conquered on our behalf, and He's made us kings and priests to God, so all the wreaths of empire meet upon His his head. In fact, you know that Christ is a representative figure. His faithful people participate, that is, they have a share in His life. That's what Paul is teaching when he uses that little phrase over and over again, in Christ. That's what we're taught in the book of Revelation when it tells us that believers die in Christ the Lord. We're never not in the Lord. We participate in His life. And so Asia and Egypt, Europe and the Americas, and all the provinces of God's universe belong to the Lord's Christ. All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Well, there's one There's more to this writer, he's known by by reputation to be faithful and true. But it also says that he has a name, he bears a name that no one knows but himself. It's a mystery. There are mysteries in the Bible, there are mysteries to the Christian life. We want everything to be absolutely clear to us, we want people to tell us everything. We can't tell you everything. So, in the Old Testament, there's that angel who wrestles with Jacob overnight, and Jacob wants to know his name, and he won't tell him his name. Or there's Manoah in the book of Judges, and the angel that comes to speak to him, he wants to know his name, but the angel won't tell him his name. And then when Moses, you remember, is encountered by God. And God tells him to take his shoes from off his feet because the ground in which he's standing is holy ground. And he sees a fire, flame, self-burning flame that doesn't consume anything material like the bush. And he asks who God is, and God says, I'll tell you about myself. I am that I am. And you can tell them, I am sent you to them. But I want you to know your name, says God. And God says, this is my name. And God gave to Moses a device, four letters in Hebrew, with no consonants. It was not a name at all. You couldn't pronounce it. We don't know how to pronounce it. We don't know what it means. It's a mystery to us. And we, we try to mark it, it's marked in the Bible, every time you read the Old Testament, they have very kindly put in all uppercase letters, Lord, in German, Hair, Herr, H-E-R-R. Uh, and different words used in other translations, to designate where this mysterious name that we don't know is. This is the name that Jesus has that no one knows but Himself. The seventh-century commentator Andreas puts it like this, that His name is unknown signifies the incomprehensibility of his essence. When we think about Jesus as God, we're thinking about something we have absolutely no ability whatsoever to comprehend, describe, or get a handle on. That's the, that's the bottom line. But by he goes on to write, by virtue of his works, however, the things that he has done here. We, he is known by many names that describe His works, good, the shepherd, the light, the sun, the life, the righteousness, holiness, redemption. He's known by terms of negation, that is, things He isn't. He's incorruptible. He's invisible. He's immortal. He's unchangeable. According to his essence, he's without name, but he's known, he, he, he is known by himself alone with the Father and the Spirit. Let me put it like this God and God alone knows himself for who he is and is unknowable to us. But God, as He reveals Himself, is noble. So, He is true and faithful. And we'll find out that He is other things as well. The next thing we notice is that He's clothed in a robe sprinkled with blood. Back in uh, the Old Testament, there's the Conqueror who comes from Edom, his garments are dyed. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments dyed with blood? Back there, it was the blood of his enemies. And there's an element to that here, but preeminent here, it is the blood of the Lamb. You notice that he's sprinkled with blood before the battle begins. So this is the blood shed on the cross where He trampled underfoot Satan and all His work. But it's not only the blood of Jesus. This is in symbol, remember, in symbol. It's also the blood of Jesus' people because Jesus is united to His people. That's why when He comes to Saul of Tarsus, who's been persecuting the church, Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting Me? Paul could have said, I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting Christians. But he's saying, Jesus is saying to to Saul, you persecute Christians, you're persecuting Me. You touch them, you touch the apple of My eye, because they follow Me, and as Christians, have taken up their cross and followed Jesus, so they have suffered. One way or another they have suffered. They may not all have died. They may not all have been killed. Their blood may not have been spilt in that sense, but in the sense of being persecuted and martyred That's what we go through. That's what we suffer when people sin against us. That's what we suffer. Why do we suffer? Because we feel sin acutely. And Jesus' people are in Jesus. Jesus comes in their part. He represents them. And uh, He comes with garments dipped in blood. And then we come to the name by which He is called the Word of God. That's a public name, a revealed name. That's not a secret, the Word of God. Richard Bockham puts it like this, while the devil and the beast reign, the earth is a sphere of deceit and illusion. Truth is seen first in heaven, and then when it comes from heaven to earth, chapter 19, verse 11, we saw heaven open and truth, faithful and true, truth, Himself, the Word of God, coming to earth. You see, the lesson is that Jesus comes not with guns to fire on people. He comes as the Word of God. It's His Word, His truth that separates men and women, the righteous from the unrighteous, the godly from the ungodly. It's His Word of truth that sends you to heaven or to hell that either saves or judges. He comes and it's a spiritual battle as He comes with a Word of truth to create faith in your heart or to leave you in your sin. He is the truth to which we bear witness, and by which we must learn to live. So here is Christ then with His heavenly army, the angels, the holy angels He spoke about. He comes from heaven as the judge. He comes also to do battle with the enemy, not by earthly and material means. Remember He said, to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Some people think Christianity is going to be advanced by war. Right now in Russia, the patriarch of the Russias in Moscow believes that Christendom is going to be reestablished by the war that's being waged now by Russia against Ukraine, that it can be established by violence. You cannot establish the kingdom of God by violence. Jesus will not have it. My kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my servants would be fighting, but they're not. The kingdom is established by the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, and it's by the Word of God that He strikes down the nations. It's by the Word of God that He rules them with a rod of iron at this last time in the judgment. His weapons, like ours, are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds, to destroy arguments, and to bring down every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So, he has a name, a name known only to himself. He has a name that he has by reputation. He's faithful and true. He has a name that's known to all the churches, the Word of God, And He has a name that will one day be blazoned before the whole world and everyone in the world, King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, at the end of the chapter, you have a a resolution of sorts. As an angel standing in the sun presides over that last battle, as you see the angel, as it were, dealing with the rebellious powers of the earth, just one angel, by the way, does it all, does it all. One angel is all it takes to bring about the end of the Antichrist and the false prophet. And that's what's described here at the end. The angel issues a summons. Come gather for the great supper of God. It's a startling image, isn't it? We've read about a supper before just earlier on in this chapter, in fact, the section immediately before this, we heard of a great supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And you're invited to that supper. You're invited as a guest to that supper. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be there at that supper. But do you not believe in Jesus? I really wish I could make this easier for you, but you will hate me in eternity forever if I do. Here is the thing. That great supper at the end of the age, and this is a metaphor, remember, it is a figure of speech, at that last supper you are either a guest sitting with Jesus at that supper, or you're on the menu. That's the image that's painted here. You're on the menu. Now, you say, that's not a very politically correct picture. I didn't paint the picture. The Holy Spirit did. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. Jesus is coming again. And should we fear his coming? Well, I think we should all fear his coming because he will judge all of us, even those of us who. trusting in Christ alone, that will be an uncomfortable day. But we do have the hope that despite that, we will share in that table with Him. But if you don't have Christ today, that will be a terrifying day. I'm going to pray that you have Christ today. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled uh, under Your Word. I ask Your forgiveness if anyone thinks that anything I've said today I've enjoyed saying. Nothing could be further from the truth. There are people I love who don't know You, and I pray for regularly. And that's true for all of us in this room. But we love them enough, Lord, to ask you to have mercy on them, that you would find them, seek them out, give them the grace of faith that they might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and, though and so be saved. We pray in his strong name. Amen.